This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional. I'm your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast was, like most creative processes, birthed from a combination of a several cups of coffees and, honestly, even more questions posed by a series of impassioned graduate students that I've had the pleasure of supervising over the last several years. First Bite's mission... It's to answer those questions that we've all had, but we've either been too afraid to ask or we didn't have the subject matter expert saved to our own personal speed dials. So, do you too have more questions and answers when it comes to treating your medically complex and fragile pediatric patients? Are you unsure if the signs and symptoms that you're observing are indicative of an allergy, maybe an underlying GI issues, or could they possibly be neurologically driven? How many questions do you really have for that registered dietitian regarding the formulas prescribed and the flow rate through that patient's G-tube? Have you ever been consulted for a quote-unquote difficult latch only to find out that the mother is exclusively breastfeeding, but you've never nursed a little one or worked with the breastfed patient before? And what about functional communication? Are you so over flashcards, but you need advice on how to get started with core vocabulary with a non-speech-generating device or how to find the right fit for a speech-generating device? Do you have additional worries about the basic day-to-day running and documentation of your private practice? How do you go about obtaining referrals or even documenting that note so that the insurance company deems it medically necessary? If you answered yes, well, then come join me, Michelle Dawson, for this dynamic podcast presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Who am I, you ask? Well, I'm a self-described SLP geek with, as my family says, a touch of the ADD and ADHD. I have a passion for serving the least of these, namely the most complex and involved pediatric patients in their natural environment through my private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in the Columbia, South Carolina metro area. I also have had the pleasure, and currently still am, traveling the country where I lecture on best practices for pediatric dysphagia and functional language acquisition delivered through an early intervention natural environment model. Are you still intrigued? Then come join me as I interview some amazing folks. And don't forget that you can submit questions for a Q&A or interview request topics to me via email at firstbite at speechtherapypd.com or on our Facebook page. And also check out our website, drop a review, subscribe to obtain those coveted ASHA CEUs. All right, folks, let's get right to it. Welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional Resources for the Pediatric Clinician. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. The topic of today falls in both the functional and fed category, in which we will tackle the confusion that we have all probably felt while feeding a child with a cleft. 
On that note, I am excited to introduce my nerd gal crush, Mrs. Melissa Montiel, MSCCCSLP, who practices at the Medical University of South Carolina and with the Evelyn Trammell Institute for Voice and Swallowing. If you've heard one of my long-winded lectures, then her name should be no surprise. When I state, if you're the smartest person in the room, then get out and get a new room. Well, Melissa's the one, it's her room that I want to be in. She's my go-to person for when I am in a clinical rut with a patient or when I see a sign and symptom that I just can't shake and I need additional information. Melissa, as well as her professional team of some phenomenal SLPs and specialists at MUSC have cracked the cases, given the answers, and helped me help numerous patients on their healing journey. I am tickled pink to have her here today. So, Melissa, tell us all about you and how you landed the coveted dream job for all things cleft at MUSC. (laughs) Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Um, Well, I have been practicing at MUSC um, since January of 2008 and been a speech pathologist since May of 2007. Um, Yes, and I feel very, very lucky to have the job that I do. I get to do exactly what I love every single day and help the population that I am very passionate about. Um, I feel lucky because I've known for, you know, years and years that I wanted to do cleft and When I was in grad school, I just said, this is what I want to do. And I just kind of buckled down and um, did observations. And once the opportunity came about at MUSC, I, you know, took it and said, this is what I want. And I have been so lucky because not only get to do I get to practice at MUSC doing this wonderful work, but I also get to travel abroad. I've been to El Salvador with Global Smile to help with cleft care down there. I went to Africa on a teaching mission. And um, every year um, I go to the American Cleft Palate Association meetings just to make sure I'm up to date on all the research and treatment practices and all that good stuff. Okay, so I have questions just on your bio. Absolutely. Um, One, um, where did you go to in Africa? Because that's so cool. Yes, it was such a wonderful experience. It was uh, Morocco. So Global Smile is very, very adamant about multidisciplinary care because something that's really easy to do with cleft care is think, okay, well, the lips repaired, the palate's repaired, everything looks fine. But what happens after that with speech and swallowing and resonance and um, the surgeon that is in charge of Global Smile, he's very good at uh, making sure that our patients have that kind of care. And so we went to Morocco and we um, invited hospitals and doctors uh, in that area to come and listen to multidisciplinary care. So Morocco, and nice. it was super fun. Fabulous. Okay. I mean, I could take one for the team. If you need help in the future, continue to want me into shape. always looking for um, wonderful people. <laughs> nice. Okay. So there it is, folks. All right. Your first call to action of the podcast. Get to Morocco. Join Global Smile Foundation. All right. Then um, my other question that I have for you, um, you, where did you go to school to learn your amazing skill set? And do you have like specialty classes that you took in order to beef up your skill set on cleft? Um, so I think the most important thing, and if I could drive one point home to listeners and students out there was 
a wonderful mentorship. So unfortunately, I don't think that cleft education is a strong part anymore of the master's degree program, but I went to Auburn. Yeah. And I went to Auburn for my undergrad degree and it was a very, very strong program. I felt very capable after leaving there. And then I went to MUSC, the Medical University of South Carolina, for my graduate degree. Um, Unfortunately, they don't have a program for that anymore. But one of the wonderful things about that program was, is we got to, uh, I was, you know, my clinical practitioner was the cleft SLP. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I requested her and I just, you know, hung on. I, you know, asked her questions and I picked her brain all the time. And um, she really shaped my knowledge base and um, my ability to be able to practice comfortably and uh, just being able to help all these kiddos. So I think my education was helpful, but the invaluable part was my mentorship with Katie Huffnagel. Okay. Now, um, you said something else. Um, the American Clef Palette Association. I have literally never heard of them until you sent me your bio. And I was like, wait, what? That's a thing? <laughs> so, what is that? Who are these magical people and where do they hide? I am so glad you asked that because they are very, very important. So they are kind of like the ASHA, but for cleft lip and palate. So they put out annual research. Um, they have... Um, it's kind of where you would look to see for nationally certified teams. And that is something that is incredibly important because um, when you're looking for, you know, a cleft surgeon or somebody um, to take care of your cleft child, it is important that they have the education and the knowledge and the skill set and the experience. And so it's just the national organization that kind of takes care of the cleft kids and um, MUSC's team is a nationally certified team. And we're very proud of that because it's, Um, not an easy title to achieve. So um, it's kind of a go-to for uh, class, like the ASHA of the cleft world. Uh, I just Googled it. There's 2,500 members. This is fantastic. Um, 30 disciplines, 60 countries. Yeah, I'm I will I will research that one further. So thank you. It's an excellent resource too for those that uh, maybe don't have a resource near them, um, that they can have a mentor. They can also go to annual meetings. Um, it's just, it's a very, um, wonderful resource and, um, the research they put out is just invaluable as well. Okay. All right. So, um, let's just get crack a lacking. Uh, I actually little known fact about me. Um, I became a speech pathologist because, um, I'm the oldest of five and one of my youngest brothers was born with a unilateral cleft lip and he did not talk until he was four. Um, he had the repair work done. They did an awesome job. Something happened, uh, when he was 17 and he had to have his left nair repaired. Um, he, he was a pretty avid soccer player, and I'm pretty sure he took one ball too many to his nose. <laughs> so, like, uh, sorry, Ethan, to throw you under the bus like that. But um, I mean, like, it looks great. Like, his repair work is oh, beautiful. But he had this lengthy delay in speech. Um, and, you know, they ruled out apraxia, actually cracked him up to having a dysarthria, which is super rare for a kid, but leave it to, you know, my baby brother. Um, and, um, that's how I became a speech path was because I was inspired by the speech path who treated oh, him. I didn't know that, but, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, great. yeah, that's that's um, my, my Ifimon, um, Ichimon. But um, so on that note, 
my mother or not my mother-in-law, Lord Almighty, my, um, we're from Virginia. Um, my, my stepmom, um, had the diagnosis in utero, but they, and they knew that she, and she had complicated pregnancies and, you know, if in his mid to late twenties now, so ultrasounds have dramatically improved, but I've also treated a child who I just discharged, you know, a little while ago, who's on my caseload for two years. And he had very limited ultrasounds because they live in a very rural section of South Carolina and they didn't know how extensive his um, cleft palate was until after he was born. So what does ideal prenatal diagnosis and preparation entail? And then how often do we actually see that within the continental Absolutely. United States? That is a very good point. And you bring up um, a lot of things that we see. So um, ideally, so we have a prenatal center that we go through in our prenatal center since all of the cleft lip um, and possibly um, if we can tell if there's a cleft palate um, to us. So you bring up a good point, like what can we see on an ultrasound and, and what does this entail? So around the 18 week ultrasound, they will look and they can see if um, a child has a cleft lip or, lip or not. So it is very hard, if not impossible, to see an isolated cleft palate, so meaning that the lip is intact on an ultrasound. So I think those are the ones that are not missed, but not diagnosed upon birth. So if a child has a cleft lip, we see it. And now the ultrasound technology has improved. We are getting more accurate to saying we do think there's a palate involved. However, just for preparedness sake, for um, the sake of the families and knowing what to expect, when we do our prenatal consults, we go ahead and just say, we are going to do this and assume that the palate is involved. That way you can be prepared for the situation um, that requires the most need. So, you know, one of the things that... Um, you know, if, the, if it's just the cleft lip, so if I say, you know, we tell the families it's just the cleft lip, then most likely your child will not have any feeding problems. Sometimes if the alveolar ridge is involved, there is a little bit of feeding problems. It's a, It can kind of be dependent. But what we do is our prenatal center will contact us and uh, we set up a time that's most convenient with the parent and uh, I meet with the family um, in addition to the child's surgeon, and we use that time to just help ease the fears and the uncertainty that the family might be feeling. So I will talk to the family and I'll say, um, you know, my portion really entails feeding and why feeding the cleft palate baby is different. And we provide uh, specialty care feeders. and. Um, I think one of the biggest issues and most sensitive issues to tackle is the fact that a child with a cleft palate is not able uh, to breastfeed for nutritional purposes. And so I, you know, and, and that's something that um, not a lot of people really think of and how hard that might be on a family, especially a mama that's maybe breastfed her last four kids. And um, it's something that really needs to be taken with uh, sensitivity. And you know what I tell these families? I say, um, you know, you can pump and use breast milk in the specialty care bottle and then bring to breast afterwards for bonding purposes. But what we want more than anything is for baby boy or girl to grow and be healthy and to get the nutrients he or she really needs. And 
essentially the reason why we can't bring to breast and the reason why we need a specialty care feeder is because when you have that open palate, you have essentially just put um, you know, a hole in the system and it's just like trying to drink through a straw that has a big old hole punched in it. You can't create that suction and the baby works and works and works and burns calories and just doesn't get the nutrition they need. So we're able to provide them with some of those feeders and let them know why feeding their cleft child will be different. Um, you know, I kind of speak to them about the speech care they may or may not need um, over the next year. And, you know, the biggest goal being in the first year of life, gaining weight, gaining weight, gaining weight. Um, and, you know, the surgeon then uh, talks to the family about the timeline of repair. So when do we repair the lip around three months and then the palate gets repaired anywhere from nine to 12 months, assuming that um, little baby's gaining weight just like they should. Um, and then just the surgery down the road and uh, any that may be necessary. Okay. I have, and I think, um, yep, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I have, I have a couple of thoughts. You talked about the pumping um, the, the baby pumping and, or the mother pumping the breast milk. Mm -hmm. Um, we had Abby Bishop on, um, I don't know if you've had a chance to catch that one or not. Um, but Abby is an SLP and a lactation consultant. Oh, great. Um, and she's, she's actually down in your neck of the woods. Um, and she said that, um, a lot of, uh, people don't realize that when you go to pump your breast and your nipple size may be different. So don't assume that one, um, uh, one cup. And if you've ever pumped ladies, you know, the cone that makes it look like you're going to suck your boob off. Um, they could be, you could need different sizes for each breast. So, you know, make sure that, you know, if you're a parent and you're listening to this, talk with the lactation consultant, they can kind of guide you on that because it might hurt one side and then not, and the other side fit better. Um, and then one thing I learned from you uh, in your class when I saw you talk at Skisha a couple of years ago was that uh, the cleft feeders, um, they, you can, if you are working with a family that doesn't have a lot of money, Dr. Browns will donate the cleft bottle um, to the families if you contact them and reach them. And you said that, and I, and it wasn't a part of your lecture. It was just kind of like, you just mentioned it. And I like wrote that down that has literally changed patient stars for me, for some of my kids. So, um, I was just so grateful that you shared that. I just wanted to make sure. Absolutely. And we, um, are luckily, you know, we do a lot, our team does a lot, some fundraising and part of that fundraising goes to purchasing bottles to help out with that because it's not necessarily, you know, something that you might anticipate if you wanted to breastfeed. And so, um, you know, we're never going to let a child go without. So, um, that is one of the reasons we fundraise is to be able to provide those bottles as well. That's awesome. Hey, if somebody wants to donate to the fundraiser, can you send me the link when it comes up and I can throw it on my website and throw it on the first bite Facebook page? Okay, cool. I sure will. Okay. I'm sorry. Squirrel number one, done. <laughs> okay. Um, so if, if the family does want to pump, do you guys refer out to the lactation consultant for assistance if they're struggling or do you do that? I'm assuming after birth or what is it? You've gotten the prenatal, you've gotten the timeline, but 
what happens at birth. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of it depends on where the child is born. So um, amazingly and very frustratingly, um, a lot of areas still don't really understand cleft. So I have talked to physicians and nurses and mad mamas and daddies saying they're trying to put a tube in, saying they can't eat. And I think the number one thing, yeah, and that's the big one. Another really important reason for the prenatal is I tell families, put these bottles in your go bag and um, you know what to tell the doctors and the nurses. And um, so once the child is born, if they are at MUSC or if they're at a facility that has, um, you know, uh, the capabilities to consult speech, then um, so like an MUSC, for example, if one of our cleft kiddos is born, we're paged and we go in right away to help with the feeding. Um, I think that's probably one of my most favorite things is feeding, you know, a two to three hour old baby and uh, helping, you know, moms kind of feel comfortable with that and dads understanding uh, that, hey, this is going to be okay. And you have help and you have a whole team of people here for you. Okay. I got to just know, do you ever just smell the two hour old baby? Because I would. Oh, yes. <laughs> <They're>, yes. <laughs> They're so, so sweet. And uh, yeah, and we do. I'm sorry. I didn't really um, answer your question. We do. If, if the mamas are having trouble with pumping, absolutely. We get lactation involved. And, um, you know, I'm very big. I tell families you can pump. You don't have to pump what is right for you and your family. If they want to pump, and uh, attempt uh, that, and then we absolutely get lactation involved. Okay. All right. So um, if for the families that are born in more rural locations and, um, you know, I, I have a kid on my caseload I've been working with since December. He was born with um, cleft lip, cleft palate, micronanthia, um, and um, some, some other issues. Uh, they gave him a trach and uh, G-tube right out the gate. Yep. Uh, and happen. Yeah. And I, and I never understood why the need for the trach. I mean, granted, I, I got him when he was, you know, 18 months old, but um, I just didn't see the need for it. I mean, he, uh, unless the micronanthia was that severe that it was occluding his airway, but. Well, and that's what I'm wondering, you know, if he was a pyroband sequence baby. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if he, if no, he, he never had the diagnosis of Pierre Rubin. It was a hard palate only cleft, but, um, a hard palate or soft. It, it, you see. Um, no, what, what he's had it closed. He has one fistula left. Oh God. Make me think of my, <laughs> uh, no hard. problem. It was hard only. So, I seriously yeah. just ran my tongue across the palate. <laughs> <laughs> so I would assume that you know, maybe the, you know, we trach if the airway is so compromised that they cannot breathe without positioning or maybe mandibular distraction. So, um, yeah, it's hard though, because sometimes people, you know, are their old school way of practicing and they do that right out the gate. And that, that's something our team really works towards educating is, Hey, just call us, call our team if you don't know. And I've spoken with nurses and doctors on Saturdays and Sundays and nighttime and, you know, just ad, just advocating. Okay. I'm, I'm thinking of multiple cases that I just want to pick your brain on, but let me get back to the next question. Um, so if they, uh, that first year out, and I'm assuming that, you know, they've had the cleft lip repaired around three or four months. Um, and then, you know, we're gearing up, putting the weight on to have the palate closed between nine and 12 months, like you said. Um, and I've had kids that, 
here in Colombia, they're told they have to be two to three before their cleft is closed. Difference in opinions. Um, um, what is that first year like for a child with a cleft of the lip and hard palate or either or versus a typically developing PO feeder? Absolutely. So let's take a few different scenarios here. So let's say that we have a baby that has solely cleft lips, so no hard palate involvement at all, just the tissue. Really, that first year should be no different um, than anything else. And also, Michelle, I would like to um, assume that there are no comorbidities with these patients. So we're talking about straight out the gate, cleft lip and palate, not anything with micrognathia, you know, 22Q kids, anything like that, or heart, anything we're just talking about. Um, mm -hmm. Melissa, hold, hold on one second. Let me just translate because some people might not know the terminology we're throwing around. Micrognathia is a small recessed jaw. Um, it's like an overbite, but it's an overbite because the mandible is super teeny tiny. Um, 22 Q11.2 yeah, um, deletion is a genetic syndrome, also known as, what is it, velocardiofacial and de Georges. Um, then, um, yeah, same thing, yeah, all, all three, which everyone will learn more about in our next podcast. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, oh, thank God you're covering that. Yes. Um, and then um, <laughs> people can't see me. I just did a cheerleader dance. Um, and then, um, uh, we, we talked about, um, mandibular distraction. That's, um, where they like bracket mm -hmm. the mandible and they rotate and it like they twin, twist a dial for lack of a better phrase, and it pulls the mandible forward. Um, and then can you, Wait. can you briefly explain different types of cleft of the lip? Yep. And, and I'm going to do that. And I, and I'll touch a little bit too on some of the other um, issues um, uh, after I talk about the lip. But so um, when we talk about clefting of the lip and the palate, so essentially you can have a cleft of just the tissue uh, either in a unilateral, meaning one side, or bilateral tissue on both sides. Um, you can have primary palate involvement, which is just the alveolar ridge and forward, so kind of right behind uh, your two front teeth where that is, that part can be involved with the lip. Um, and then you can have the palate open all the way to the back, so a cleft of the um, lip and the palate, hard and soft. Uh, you can also have just a cleft of the soft palate, so meaning just the where your uvula is split open into um, the hard palate. Um, and so those are the ones that we see most commonly. All right, so. Um, and so. It's, yeah. I, I was going to redirect us back to the question, what is the difference in feeding? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, feeding. <laughs> Let's get back to that. <laughs> So uh, let's say we have a kiddo that just has soft tissue cleft. So just that tissue is involved. We shouldn't see much of um, a change. It, it, a mama should be able to breastfeed and bottle feed, and um, there shouldn't be much of a difference. Moving um, posteriorly, let's say we've got the soft tissue and the alveolar ridge involvement. It really is child dependent. And in the you know, 10, 11 years I've been doing this, I really do think that every child with that, you just kind of have to watch. Some kiddos can breastfeed beautifully. Uh, some kiddos may need a bottle and they can't breastfeed, but they don't need a specialty care bottle. Um, and so I think it just kind of depends on, on each child. Uh, 
most importantly, where the specialty care bottles come in are when the entire hard and soft palate are clefted. And again, the whole reason for that is they just can't create suction on that nipple. And so what the specialty care bottle does is it just allows for the baby to compress the nipple versus create suction on that nipple. Um, and so, and then let's, you know, I think it's important to touch on just the soft palate clefts because these are the kiddos that usually we don't have any idea when they're born that they um, are going to have that soft palate cleft. I feel with these kiddos that it also just depends. Sometimes they're able to maybe take a regular bottle with like maybe a level three or four or level two, you know, just a faster flow. Um, because that hard palate is intact and their tongue is able to press to, um, to the top to get some suction, but it's still not going to be exactly the same as if that soft palate was intact. So those kiddos, you just kind of have to watch. And it's really important, um, and this is one thing we do in the prenatals. Also, we set up for weekly weight checks with the physician because if that baby's not gaining weight, we want to know why and we want to fix it. So um, I think those would be the big um, changes uh, that you would see in a, a cleft baby. And just like any baby, even if the cleft palate is involved, um, you know, you want to start presenting purees and softer foods um, just like you would without um, if a child didn't have a cleft. Even if it gets in their nose, that's okay. What we don't want to create is um, somebody just taking formula without any sort of solid or, you know, puree food intake. And then as I'm sure you're going to be covering in multiple podcasts, the gagging and the texture issues yeah. and all that kind make, of stuff. Make so. sure we introduce it. If uh, Let me put myself right. out of a job and say, make sure we introduce yeah. it in a because then you don't exactly. cut back on the feeding aversions. Okay. So one thing, absolutely, I, I, have, I have a question there. Like when we go to introduce the purees, like I have this sweet fraternal twin that I'm seeing right now. And I mean, I got both of the twins, but one of the girls has a, um, a cleft of her um, hard and her soft palate. Um, and bless her. She had, um, a bilateral cleft of her lip too. She had all the things and it's otherwise. Okay. So she had bilateral cleft lip with her palate. Yes. Yes. And she, um, she's had her nose repaired. Um, but the, um, the right nostril, it's, it's, it's as if she can barely move the air through. It's so closed in together. And of course, you know, we're, hey, we are introducing pureed foods. I mean, chronologically eight months, adjusted, no, chronologically nine months, adjusted age seven months, um, functioning developmentally around five to six months because we've got some gross motor stuff too um, with unknown etiology. But um, every time they go to do the pureed foods, it comes right up and out and gets logged in that right muscle. Oh, yeah. And, it, and, and it's difficult to to get it out because of how, when the surgery was done, it it closed it together, you know? Um, And the family is so hesitant to feed her purees. And I'm like, look, she has a fantastic um, sneeze reflex for a lack of a better word. She knows how to get that out. (laughs) Yeah. That's just it. She'll get it out, but they are so hesitant 
to offer the period foods because it will go straight up into her nose. So how, and, and they're new to me. Like I've only had them, like I may have seen them like four sessions. So like, how can I phrase that encouragement to them other than, you know, we're setting her for success. Like how do I encourage them to continue to feed her those period foods? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one thing that we think about as adults is, oh gosh, that has to be so uncomfortable, but that is all she knows. You know, that is her anatomy and that's what she knows. And, um, you know, I think telling the parents, hey, this is just part of her development. She's used to this feeling. And as long as you know that she's able to breathe okay and she's not getting food in there or anything, that is just kind of part of the natural stage we have to take. And bilateral clefts can be pretty tricky. And I know that um, lots of times families get nervous about that. But I wonder if you could um, maybe make it a little bit thicker or if maybe present the food further back too, if that would help her. Um, I'd love to see a picture of where the, how the cleft looks, but um, yeah, I think just, I will, I will have to send that. Yeah, that would be great. I I have, I have encouraged them to come. (laughs) I would love to see that family, but I, um, yeah, I think just telling these families, I get it all the time and they're like, you know, and we'll kind of go over this in the next one about the misconceptions, but Um, is that this is, they, you know, they're born and this is what they know that that communication to their nose has been open their whole life. And so, you know, a lot of times kiddos don't even, you know, with bottle feeding, they don't get milk in their nose, but sometimes they do and we don't know it's there. And and that's kind of what's normal for them. And so I think telling them too, that, you know, skipping an important part of feeding development can create another multitude of problems as well. <laughs> Michelle, I was going to ask, do you, do you want me to go over the different kinds of bottles um, just briefly or? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah? Okay. Please. That would be, that would be huge. Every, everybody, everybody that's listening is vigorously nodding. Okay. Yes, please. Tell <laughs> us about the bottles. <laughs> um, okay, perfect. So there are um, four different main kinds of cleft feeders and We'll start out with kind of the old school ones that we used to use, the um, Mead Johnson um, cleft nursers. And this looks just like a squeezy bottle. So essentially, this is feeder dependent. So the feeder, the mom, the dad, aunt, grandma, whoever on speech has to squeeze the bottle and uh, kind of watch for the baby's cues when the baby's swallowing. And um, again, what that does is it allows the baby to not have to create suction. Um I am not the biggest fan of these. I think they're very good. I take these on my missions because they're very straightforward and there's not a lot of parts to the bottle. It's just the squeeze bottle and the nipple. Um, But one reason I don't love these is because, again, it's feeder dependent. Baby's not setting the tone here. And so um, and, and they look a little bit different. And, it, you know, the parent and the feeder have to be, you know, they get very nervous. Am I squeezing too much? Not enough. What's happening? And so. we have moved away from those for the most part. There's the pigeon, uh, and essentially those are the most like the Dr. Brown specialty care feeders um, out there, but essentially it looks like a bottle. It's just got a valve in there, and um, the child just has to compress the nipple. Um, the nipple on that bottle is very big, and so, uh, or I believe so. Um, I know there might be listeners out there disagreeing, but I, I, I don't love it for that reason. Um, but essentially, all the baby does is just munch and munch. And 
uh, you have a little valve in there like you do with the Dr. Browns. Um, I love the Dr. Browns specialty care feeder. That's our go-to for the most part. Uh, it looks just like a Dr. Browns bottle, except for it has a little blue valve in there. Again, all it's doing is requiring that the baby munch on the nipple versus create suction. And it looks just like a normal bottle. Uh, it is baby dependent. Yeah. Families love that because it looks like the bottles their other kids have used. And absolutely. Yeah. And it makes them look it, normal is what I've heard. Right. Absolutely. And it, it's one less thing that they have that has to be, you know, different. And uh, and I think the biggest uh, kind of, I guess, kinks we've run into with this is um each baby is kind of different. Uh, not everybody requires a level one nipple right out the gate. And that is something you kind of have to watch for is what level do we need to start with? How quickly do we need to move up? Um, and, you know, for those of you listening, the one, you know, Dr. Brown starts at an ultra preemie, which we would not use on a cleft nurse or most likely in preemie one, two, three, four, Y cut. And so when we provide bottles, yep. Yeah, so the Y-cut is essentially like Dr. Brown's version of the X uh, cross-cut nipple. So I don't think I've – we will sometimes use that if we are thickening. So if we have to put, you know, thicken the baby for aspiration purposes, then sometimes we'll use that. But most of the time we like to do like a level three or level four. I always forget about the level four. I, I've had one kid with the Y, but, you know, most of the times I get to a level two or level three and my kids are transitioning off. So, right. Absolutely. And, and that's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, no problem. Um, yeah. And so I think, uh, one important thing that I like to touch on is that, you know, so much of the time we do all this preparation and everybody's so prepared and families say, this is so much easier than I thought it was going to be. And assuming there are no comorbidities, it really is. The child can get into a good feeding rhythm and it, is not as difficult as you would think. Um, you know, something, and I like to say in my lectures, we can't just blame the cleft for everything. So a lot of the times these cleft kids do have comorbidities, a heart problem, a syndrome, and that sometimes is more to blame. Um, and you know, Michelle, I actually forgot to mention the Haberman feeder, um, because that's a, that's one we still use, uh, Pretty frequently. I think, Michelle, don't they call that the special needs feeder now? Yeah, that's what I've heard is Yeah, we used to call it the Haberman. Now it's the special needs feeder. And essentially, um, it looks very different. though. So the nipple's much longer. Um, and it runs off the same idea of compression. And it has that little valve. The th and the thing that we like about this one is that there are different lines on the bottle. So you can, whatever line goes under the baby's nose is the flow. So it's slow, medium, fast. And so you can kind of, you know, pick based on that. Um, and we actually like to use these bottles more with our Piero band sequence kids when the ones with micrognathia, the smaller jaw and glossoptosis, which is the tongue falling back in the airway. We have found that it works a little bit more effectively. Um, so those are kind of your choices for cleft nurses, but I do like like getting back to what we were saying uh, that, you know, we have to kind of look at the baby as a whole. Is this cleft related or is this because they have a heart condition? Is this because they have a syndrome? Is this because, hey, they can't breathe while they're eating? So that is something that I think we need to look at as clinicians. Um, assuming there are no comorbidities, this hopefully shouldn't be a difficult process.
Yeah, no, and you, you touch on something looking at the child as a whole. That was something that I felt like I did not get. I didn't get it presented to me right. that way when I was in school. It was presented to me as right. this is your scope. This is your role. Stay in it. Um, but it wasn't until I got out in the real world that I realized, you know, we're actually supposed to be utilizing interprofessional practice. I should be looking at them through the lens of OT, PT, like what are our gross motors? Do we have the prerequisite for like cup drinking as in like sitting up or, um, you know, those kind of factors. Um, but yes, audience, please look at the child as a whole. And if they can't breathe, if the aero portion of their aero digestive tract is compromised, then they are not going to want PO intake. So absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think the number one thing I encourage, and I think the mark of a, an excellent clinician is saying, you know what? I don't know. Yes. I need help. Yes. And so I'm going to call this person. I'm going to call this person or I'm going to send them to ENT or GI because I just don't know, but I know it's not, it's not the way it should be. Yes. Yes. We are prof- chasing our professional curiosity. Dr. John Rosenbeck wrote an article up in ASHA SIG 13 and it was in 2016 and it was specifically, it was like, I don't know, it was a quick read, like maybe only four or five pages long. And it was all about how we are supposed to be professionally curious and make the referrals. And yeah, yes. So absolutely. Yes. And <laughs> it, along those lines, I went, I went to a feeding conference out in California and the doctors, everybody there said, what we need to be asking is why. And so not yeah. just treating the symptom we see, why is this happening? Why are they arching back? Why are they gasping for air? Why are they doing this? Let's be problem solvers. Okay. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to ask the question. Um, when you're treating cleft palate babies, do you ever utilize chewy tubes or anything that vibrates in their mouth in your process towards PO? Michelle, as we both love to say, food does not vibrate. You know, when I first started out, I was just so intolerant of anything like that. And I, you know, I have a little charge kiddo that comes in and she has a chewy tube around her neck and she chews it because she grinds her teeth and it is work. It has been very helpful for her. Yes. Um, food does not vibrate. We do not, you know, it is not a normal um you know, presentation to put a vibrating tool in a child's mouth and then try to get them to take a bottle. And it just, again, we, so folks, we do not need to wake up the mouth, right? Yeah. Don't wake the mouth up by vibration. It doesn't need that. Right. <laughs> our spoons don't vibrate. Our mouth doesn't vibrate. It, it just, it's not a natural way to look at things as a problem solver. Okay. All right. Well, um, we have about seven minutes and in that time frame, um, can you please dispel some of the common misconceptions with cleft palate and feeding when we go to do actual treatment with these kiddos? Absolutely. So this is one thing I love to go over in prenatals because as we know, the wonderful world of Google can be very scary. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're all going to have cancer. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's always, you get the one blog out there where, you know, one in a million or, um, and so I actually really like to recommend cleftline.org um, for very good information, but um, there are still a lot of myths out there that I hear from speech pathologists, nurses, doctors, and healthcare professionals all around. Um, I think the biggest, you know, one of the biggest ones we tackle, and we've kind of gone over this a little bit is, well, if their lip is intact, 
they should be able to breastfeed and bottle feed just fine. Um, or the opposite, you know, oh, well, their lip is not intact and they just have a cleft of the soft tissue of the lip. They're not going to be able to breastfeed. So what is the most important thing for feeding is that palate. So just because we have that lip repaired at three months, if that palate is still wide open, we're still going to have trouble creating that suction because the suction has to do with the palate. And then on the opposite end, if just the lip is clefted, then we should not have any problems feeding, assuming, again, no comorbidities. Um, my personal soapbox of reflux. How many kids are put on reflux meds because they see formula in the nose? It's going to be in the nose. <laughs> So um, I see a lot of kids that get put on Zantac or Prilosec or something because they had, quote, reflux um, and they could see the milk in the nose. Well, guess what? There's a big, wide open communication from our mouth to our nose. There's probably going to be a little bit of milk, maybe, maybe not. Um, and again, like we touched on earlier, that's normal. You can suction it out. You can, you know, wipe, you know, wipe with a rag if needed to. I usually just recommend using one of those little bulbs. But again, kids do much better than you think they will. A lot of the times people have in mind that all of this liquid is going to be pouring through their nose. Um, and that's not usually the case. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I mean, I've seen a little bit of it in the nose. But I mean, most of those kids, I mean, one kid on my caseload, he will, um, he likes uh, oh, those cheddar squares. And they will go through because he's had it closed, but he has two fistulas. They have to go back in and repair. Yep. And the interior fistula, yeah. yeah. And so he will, he will get the cheese cracker stuck up, and then yeah. I will see him. <laughs> I will see him suck it out of his own accord, and it, he makes this funny little sound. And when I did my email, I was like, "So, Mama, what's he doing?" She goes, "Watch the cracker that's in his nostril." And then you can see it, and then all of a sudden he was gone, and he smiled, and I'm like, "That's disgustingly cool." <laughs> Michelle, I cannot tell you how many goldfish I have seen in kids in carrier fistulas. It is quite the sight. <laughs> but um, that, if you know, the hard palate is involved, you know, that little anterior part by the teeth can't be repaired until around eight years old just because of bone growth. The size of that fistula usually varies from kid to kid. So sometimes it's an issue, sometimes it's not. But um, it is not necessarily reflux just because you see formula in the nose. Um, Another thing we see all the time, risk of aspiration. These kiddos are not at any greater risk for aspiration than our non-cleft kiddos. Again, assuming there are no comorbidities. So we have a heart kiddo, yeah, maybe they're aspirating. We have a Downs kiddo, maybe they are. We have a baby that can't breathe, maybe they're aspirating, but we're not just gonna blame the cleft. Oh, they're aspirating. I've seen that a lot too. So again, being a problem solver, if we think of anatomy, we aspirate, um, not up in our nose. Aspiration occurs when we swallow into our lungs. And so isolated cleft lip and palate kiddos, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're at greater risk for aspiration. Um, and so also I have families or speech faster nurses and doctors. They'll say, well, I mean, I don't think they need a special bottle. They're sucking. I mean, look, they're, they're sucking. Well, <laughs> What is a suck? It is the ability to create suction to pull from that nipple. So the heart of what a suck, the definition of a suck is, it, they can't really do. Now, absolutely, cleft kiddos have that nutritive, you know, pattern that they go into attempting um, 
to feed. And that's what we ideally want to see. We want to put that bottle in there and we want to see them go into a nutritive pattern and um, that they're not necessarily able to suck, uh, to create that suction, but they're munching and they're able to get that formula out. And um, we touched on this a little bit, but the puree part of it, um, you know, that they can't do purees or solids until after that palate is closed. And that's just not the case. Um, and I guess one of the things we've kind of seen, and I'm sure Michelle, you'll be touching on this multiple episodes of um, your podcast, but the whole rice cereal for reflux is, gosh, in my practice, I've seen it. I've seen when I first started out, everybody was doing it and then it was, don't do that. And now people are kind of doing it again. And how many cleft kiddos I've seen that are underweight because somebody added a bunch of rice cereal to their bottle. And guess what? They can't get that rice cereal out. It's getting clogged. And so we always say that we want to be involved in that decision-making process. And why are we adding cereal to the bottle? And so we tell families, don't add anything to this bottle until you talk to us. Yes. we And, and one thing that I do like about your outfit down there is that y'all have some phenomenal registered dietitians that are involved. And so folks, she's not saying that she's running the adding of things to it, but I mean, like she's got a team. Um, and, and we've, and we've actually interviewed Jeremy Pons. He's a registered dietitian with Path of Life Nutrition. I think the name of it off the top of my head. And um, he's he's fantastic. Um, and, and he gives recommendations. Like, you know, if you've got a kid that's having issues gaining weight, well, then we can add like Duocal to breast milk. Or, right. Absolutely. And, and that yeah. adds more calories than the rice cereal. So yes, because um, nutritionists have certain feelings on rice cereal in general. And so you bring up a good point. Hey, we need to figure out why do we want this rice cereal? Okay, let's problem solve as to what we can do. Which gets us back to asking of the why and utilizing a team. Exactly. So yes. Um, Michelle, that is all I really have. Do you have any other questions for me about uh, the myths or anything? I want to remind everybody, um, don't forget um, Melissa is going to come back on October 16th to tackle velopharyngeal insufficiency, AKA VPI. And I am, I am maybe even more excited about that talk because I have so many kids currently that have VPI. So, um, let me just say thank you. And, uh, real quick, uh, if somebody has a question, that they can't get answered today, is there a way that they can get in contact with you? Absolutely. So the best way to reach me is going to be email. And I do ask that you give me a few days. Um, so if I don't respond to you right away, give me a few days. And um, also if it's been longer than a week, don't, you know, feel free to email me again because sometimes I forget. <laughs> but um, yeah, so the best way to reach me, and I don't know if we can put it up on the website, but it's just my last name, Montiel at musc.edu. And that's M-O-N-T-I-E-L, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. At musc, like the Medical University of South Carolina. Okay. Dot edu. I will, um, on my end, I'll hyperlink it through the First Bite Facebook page. That way they can, okay, perfect. They can get a hold of you. Okay, beautiful. Awesome. All right. Well, then hold on real quick. And Melissa, thank you. Yes, thank you, Michelle. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. 
This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.